Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Welcome back, everyone, to today's episode of On the Side with Jackie London. I am thrilled. I'm thrilled about today's episode. I really think you're going to love it. I had the absolute pleasure and honor and privilege of speaking to Sarah Kubrick. She's an existential psychotherapist, consultant, writer, and columnist for USA Today. She is also a Canadian certified counselor, CCC. She received her undergraduate degree in psychology a master's in counseling psychology from Trinity Western University and is a PhD candidate at Sigmund Freud University in psychotherapy sciences. Sarah is incredible. She was both so, so much fun to talk to, but also so informative and so empathetic and compassionate as you might expect. But truly, when you actually have that one-on-one experience, I mean, what a reminder about how really can anything take the place of real person-to-person therapy. <laughs> Even though Sarah was not actually, we were not actually in that patient uh, clinician setup. We, we were doing an actual episode of On the Side, but I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. We talked uh, We talk about burnout. We talk about changes in our current day-to-day as a result of the pandemic. We talk about our collective grief versus individual grief. And one thing I loved speaking to Sarah about so much is that she has a really unique perspective that I really related to on how the words that we use to describe certain things, experiences, situations, especially with food or with a personal experience that informs our food choices, how those words really matter and how our vocabulary um, needs to adapt and shift in order to really be understood by so many of us. So I truly think you are going to be blown away by today's episode. It's like a little gift of therapy. It was a little gift of therapy for me, and I know it will be for you. You're going to love this. So here is Sarah Kubrick. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. All right. So today's listener question is, what are your thoughts on the Prolon diet? Mm, All right. What is it? Let's start there. Theranos, I mean Prolon, is the latest and greatest baby of Silicon Valley, championed by Dr. Walter Longo, who's the director of Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California, and is also the founder of El Nutra, which is actually the company that provided food for the clinical trial that's referenced all over the Prolon website. So when you purchase a kit, a Prolon kit from their website, you're basically getting <laughs> art supplies to consume as sustenance for five days. I refuse to call this food as one might be tempted to do, because you basically consume about 700, 2,000 calories a day for five days, which makes your body biochemically mimic a starvation state. Did you guys hear that? I said starvation. If you're a content creator in 2021 versus a fashion magazine editor in 1999, you call this fasting, I call this starving, potato, potato, okay? A lot of what I'm hearing about Prolon on other podcasts from the internet all over the place is this one claim that Prolon makes, which is that you, if you do nothing else but this once a month and eat garbage for the rest of your life, you could possibly lose a few pounds without gaining them back and improve some biochemical markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein, blood glucose, insulin growth factor... But the fine print is pretty key here. The average amount of weight loss in the one clinical trial referenced by Prolon, it was about almost six pounds over three months, meaning that if you were to keep doing this indefinitely, you'd have to actually consistently commit to spending money to forego food for a whole entire work week every month, which is roughly 
two to it's a little bit over $2,000. I mean, I'm sure that the pricing will vary. So about $2,000 on top of your grocery budget, because you'll presumably need to try and survive for the rest of the days of the month. Okay. So before I completely just (laughs) really might sound like I'm trashing this already, which I probably am, but let's talk about some pros first, okay? Here's one major pro that Prolon has above all other types of fasting-related plans. If I have to compare it with anything, and if I'm going to compare it to anything, I'm definitely going to compare it to other types of fasts, then Prolon is certainly going to win, right? Like, at least you get some calories in the form of sad powders, broths, glycerin, which is a texturizing agent, um, and basically like a cocktail olive or two, which is a feast, compared to the water and ice chips that you can consume on other types of fasting diets, right? Another important piece of info here is that the biggest benefit in in the research was seen by those who had the most weight to lose with increased chronic disease indicators. So in other words, if you're trying Prolon because you're feeling bloated from too much soy sauce on your seaweed salad at Nobu, then you're probably just flushing out some water weight when you see a benefit to this, right? You're not necessarily benefiting from Prolon itself. But if you do have uh, have more weight to lose, then there may be some benefits, but I would encourage you to think about why that might be, right? Because if you try taking these steps for five days out of the month, then technically speaking, you've A, over time, cut down on the amount of total calories that you've taken in for that month. So therefore that can ultimately help you safely lose a little bit of weight at the end of that month, right? That makes sense. But also if you have the actual capacity, if you have the mental fortitude to do something this difficult, then that might mean that you're taking steps in other areas of your life to start practicing other actually more beneficial behaviors that are related to creating better or healthier habits over time, right? So if you, in other words, you really have to think about the type of behavior that goes into trying this for a short period and seeing results versus people who dropped off, because that's the other thing that I think is critical to know about Prolon, is that essentially it's really fucking hard. 25% of the study participants who tested the fasting mimicking diet dropped out of the trial versus 10% in the control arm. So consuming enough calories to survive, basically bottom line, not for the faint of heart, right? So we have to think about who it might be that would be successful on a trial like this, especially because we only really have this one trial to go off of. All right. So the bottom line essentially is that, you know, I I can totally understand why it seems sexy and fun and also exciting to try something that's a jumpstart or formulated by a doctor. But remember that from a doctor's perspective, it's their job to prescribe a treatment versus teach patients how to eat for better health and weight management. That's my job. All right. I think that's really important because the key physical and biochemical markers that benefit from cyclic fasting in Prolon's clinical trial are ones that other research and much more substantiated research has shown will get the same positive impact through inclusion of real whole foods, veggies, fruit, whole grains, seafood, eggs, unsweetened dairy products, nuts, seeds, my favorite, pulses like beans, lentils, chickpeas, peas, plant-based oils, right? Those are all things to include more of. So bottom line, I would say consider what feeling healthier actually means to you on a personal level within your everyday lifestyle before handing over a credit card online. Because ultimately, long-term, this can promote a binge-restrict cycle instead of actually teaching you how to eat and what to include for better health and weight management, which could ultimately have more of an impact on your physical, emotional, and psychological well-being when you could have just gotten the same physical results from consuming more vegetables more often and taking more steps to start practicing healthier habits that really work for your personal lifestyle. All right, let's get back to the episode. That's it for now. You can always hear more about it on the online the side YouTube channel. Sarah Kubrick is here, the millennial therapist. Yay! I'm so excited <laughs> that you're here with me this morning. This is such a treat, except it's not the morning for you. It's the afternoon. Tell us where you are. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I'm currently in Serbia. So it's four in the afternoon for me. <sighs> I mean, it's a fr- just a hop, skip, and a jump from the weekend for you. 
Yep. It, it, it's like my fingertips. This is the last thing I'm doing before the weekend. Well, let's go. We're going to go out on a high note. I think that's the bottom line. <laughs> exactly. We're going out on a high note. Sarah, tell us, okay, we've got to start with walking us through a typical day for you. What's for breakfast right now, particularly while you're in Serbia? We've got to talk about that. And what have you been snacking on? I know that, you know, we've especially especially those of us who work anywhere in food have been thinking a lot about how the pandemic has shifted our eating patterns, how we approach snacking, what we, what we, how we approach meal prep in general. So what are you currently starting your day with, even though it is 4 PM for you and not 10 AM for you, but, <laughs> but what, um, yeah. So tell us about how the day starts and what you've been snacking on to, to fuel some of your recent endeavors, which I hope you'll share with us. Yeah. I mean, I think my food really changes in the environment and the country I'm in. Love that. So because I travel so much, I I really try to eat the local kind of traditional foods wherever I am. So I was in Paris last week. I had croissants every morning. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, I, I really, I fully embrace the whole like coffee and croissant kind of culture. Um, I've been in Serbia for about two months now, one more month left to go. Um, and I'm having a lot of local pastries, um, oh. which is really fun, but I'm also just a huge, huge smoothie fruit type person. So I love to wake up, have some matcha, have oh. some tea, uh, and then have a little, it's a, this is berry. a gross cup. Exactly. I just showed, I just lifted my, my mug listeners <laughs> to show Sarah that I too am having a matcha at this moment, except that What's going on with the cup? It looks like it looks like my matcha. Exp- like, why is it so greasy? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I was like, I'm not sure what she's <laughs> drinking, but I assumed it was matcha. Maybe from, it's not. Maybe it's not. Was it a clean cup? I'm not. What's going on? Okay. Anyway, let's get okay. back. We're getting back on track. Okay, smoothies, matcha, and croissant. <laughs> well, kind of. Yeah. So there's this pastry called burek, which is like this amazing sort of uh, pastry that has cheese in it and or mushrooms or whatever. There's varieties mm. of them. So I'll usually snack on that mostly because it's delicious and makes me think of my childhood. Yes. So that's kind of usually how I start my days. Once in a while, I love some oatmeal. I can't eat pastries every day. That was kind of a joke, but I do really like, you know, oatmeal and just kind of basic things because I travel so much. My stomach can't take it all the time when I change diets. So having some bland, simple staples is really important for me. Wow. That's such a good point. I feel like that is, we will obviously get into this so much more in a moment, but it's such an underrated or sort of underspoken about side effect of traveling a lot is that you're it like really messes with your whole system. (laughs) It really does. Your whole system. Your hair, your digestion, your skin. And it's just, it's, especially when I used to travel really frequently or like short trips, it's really confusing for your body. But with with diet, I found that to be the the hardest or nutrition because it just varied so, so much and quality of veggies and fruits really varied from country to country. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an adjustment. Wow. Wow. So while you've been where you are, are you making most of your meals or are you able to to have time to eat meals out or or do any type of uh delivery or anything like that yeah um when it comes to smoothies and things because i don't have a fully equipped kitchen it's not my kitchen obviously i'm <laughs> staying in different apartments and things i usually get smoothies out and i would say that like in serbia there's so much fresh fruit and veggies and things like that that's, that are amazing like great salads great things like that are really fantastic. So that's usually what I uh, will get out. But then when it comes to actually prepping meals and dinners and things, I will, I like to do it myself. Yeah. Yum. Yeah. So, and can you tell us about what you're currently working on? Are you able to to talk about the the book writing? No, yeah, sure. I can tell. (laughs) Yay. I mean, um, I'm working on my very first book, which I'm super, super excited I'm about. So excited for you. Okay, so what I is know. it? So it, what's you. it about? Where do we begin on this journey and how is it going? Is it torturous? Because I have felt it's it's a little bit torturous and wonderful at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as an academic, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I was going for a walk, and of course, like writing anything, creating anything, yeah. be it art or or 
of written work or whatever it is, or Instagram posts or right. a video, it takes so much out of us. So it's absolutely exhausting. Thank but, you. Uh, you know, and I was writing my book for like 10 hours the other day and I was like, okay, like this is a lot. And then I thought to myself like, yeah, but my dissertation is worse. <laughs> and that made me feel better because I, I think when you do academic work, it's just so incredibly dry. Yeah. And so I just felt really, really happy that I had that to compare to. And it's not as torturous as academic work. I actually really enjoy it. I love it. There's moments where, you know, you want to get the message across and trying to figure out how to do that. But other than maybe I'm too early in the process, I don't know. But so far it's been, it's been really fun for me. Yeah. I've written so many short form things for Instagram and USA Today that to actually get to put out a more comprehensive piece of work is exciting. Everything about what you said, I feel like I just want to like <laughs> raise the roof. But but I mean, first of all, the fact that it's creative work and not that dry. I just had a little flashback to my master's thesis. I mean, it was not really the same thing, but it was it was a lot shorter certainly than your dissertation. But I just remember like going back to certain sentences and you would like those sentences still are stuck in my mind and I wish they weren't. I'd like to get rid of them. And then and then the you. Yeah. <laughs> and then the book, like the beauty of a book for people like you and I, like in in as practitioners, is that you don't have the word count limit in quite the same way that you would if you were writing an article or an Instagram yeah. post or whatever else it would be. And that's like like I don't think that that can be undervalued whatsoever. It's like, it's so liberating oh. once you realize that you can keep typing and then cut yourself down later. But like that of first course. draft of explosiveness is the greatest thing. So exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. I, I love writing in general or else my life wouldn't right. revolve around writing, I suppose. <laughs> I love writing and yeah, I feel like it's it's been really rewarding so far. I love that. Okay. So speaking of your writing, let's talk about something, mm -hmm. something that personally is is maybe even partially why we're here. I'm so excited to talk to you about this, which is that I, you're, in your work, you speak about something that really touched a nerve in the best possible way with me, which is our sort of collective lacking of vocabulary around specific topics. I'm thinking of, so I watched mm. this video. Um, I stalked you, of course, as I do, as I, as I must. Yeah. <laughs> as you must. As I must. Betty, just part Betty. of the job. No. Right, exactly. <laughs> So, and I, I watched this video of you speaking about Chrissy Teigen, and I've also seen this before in your work where you speak about just this kind of, and I've noticed this so much, this lacking of vocabulary around certain topics that where we don't necessarily mm -hmm. have a commonality of language around what we would say to someone who has experienced some sort of trauma that we are less familiarized with with ourselves because we don't have, we haven't normalized it. Like we as a culture haven't normalized it. We haven't spoken enough about it. Tell us about this topic in general. And then let's talk about some other ways that you've seen this starting to pop up a little bit. Cause I feel like there's probably a lot to say about different types of grief when it comes to the pandemic, certainly. And we won't, we won't be so depressing for the entire time, but just to give us, <laughs> just to give us pandemic heavy. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like where do we, where are we lacking vocabulary in general to describe a collective experience? Everywhere. Everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. <laughs> I mean, like it's, you know, it's really interesting to see psychology become more mainstream because now we have buzzwords, but what has occurred simultaneously is not just awareness, but it's also pathologizing of very normal human experiences. And so we're misusing really important words, yeah, <laughs> like really, really important words. And we're misusing them. And I think that's almost more harmful. A hundred percent. Yes. So when it comes to the way that we're communicating human experiences, I feel like as a society, we haven't learned how to do that without labeling or pathologizing. And so this is why in general, I just, I just don't think we're really communicating. And I think part of that is because we're not communicating for the sake of trying to understand one another. Because if you just spoke and just listened to someone's experience, regardless of what words they used, you could understand somebody. Oh my um, God. And we're, we just don't have the patience for that. Yes. I mean, yes, a thousand percent. <laughs> yes. Why are we doing this? I mean, well, I mean, and I don't, it, it's hard to, I guess there's probably a zillion reasons that we could say that we wind up 
doing this, but I, I wonder, and I think you just hit on something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that it's almost like this hamster wheel cycle of work all the time and have wear many hats and do many things has created this like actual just deficit of time almost to the point where we've tried to reduce everything to a soundbite rather than actually trying to understand. Yeah. I mean, I, if you don't have inner space, yeah. you can't allow others to take space. And so you reduce other people. And that has a lot to do with how much space you create in your own life, in your own mind, in your own soul, whatever you want to say. It's how much can you embrace other people? Because if you're saturated, it's not that you're not a good person or a nice person. It's just that you can't take any more on. You can't see people for who they are because it's just too much sometimes. And so I think as you're talking about, you know, wearing different hats and being so busy. Yeah, absolutely. And we've kind of constructed our lives in such a way that we don't have the space to, to really encounter, genuinely encounter one another. Oh, I just wait. I have to. <laughs> I have to sit with that for a second. That's so true. It's so true. I feel like we, it becomes reductive, but not, it's not intentionally reductive. So like, but at the same time, it can still feel shitty. Like it it can still feel like total garbage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So here's what I'd love to get get your take on is that something that I find myself talking about a lot or writing about a lot and trying to both rationalize the fact that I'm trying not to police anyone's language about food, about eating, about what they feel like eating Mm -hmm. and when they feel like eating it and why we eat what we eat, all of that. Um, But at the same time, I have my own little trigger words for lack of a better phrase, but essentially like I, I'm automatically concerned when I hear something like clean eating or this has Mm. to be healthy or this, I did, I ate something that was so good. I ate something. Oh, that was so bad. I'm not eating that today. It's so bad. Mm. What do you hear any of those words in your, in your experience, in your work around food and our value, like our value-based words around food? Value-based words around food. I mean, it's very similar to yours. I would say good and bad. I think, which is so interesting. It's like wrong and right. There's like the sense of morality when we speak about food. Right. And I think that that's really fascinating. And I mean, I I don't know vocabulary per se. There is a trigger word. Sorry. I I didn't have this question. I don't know. I'm trying to see what triggers. I think the should and shouldn't around food are interesting to me. So the should usually uh, makes me at least you know, hone in, yes. <laughs> pause and go, okay, let's talk about the should that came right before you spoke about your body or the food that you're eating. Yeah. I would say that's the biggest one. Yeah. We are. I hate that phrase now that we're shooting everywhere, but we really are. Why are we doing it? It's not, it <laughs> doesn't help us. But I, you know, and I've written about this so much, but I also find myself doing it with other things. I'm like, I should, I, I should really get there at this time or, or whatever. I Some I other thing I've decided for myself that may or may not be based in reality. (laughs) That may or may not be. And you know what? It's so interesting to me to observe. I remember writing a post and I used the word should and people were like, oh my God. And I went, no, there is should that you need to have. Right. Like you should take responsibility. I don't know how else to say that. To me, you should take responsibility. You need to maybe take responsibility for your actions. I guess there's ways to go around it. I don't remember what the post was. It was too long ago, but I thought it was so interesting that when we say the things that we should do that I genuinely think as humans, we probably should, people don't like it. And then when we place the most unrealistic expectations on ourselves, then we use the word should, like it's out of like (laughs) endless shoulds. And so it's such an interesting dichotomy of like, I'm sure there's things in life we probably should be doing. Yeah. Like I like, like, but, like contributing to a 401k, for example, that's probably a worthwhile should. You know? <laughs> probably a worthwhile should, you know, like feeding your child probably should feed your yes. child, taking responsibility for what you did last night, probably should do that too. Like whatever it right. is, you know? And so I'm not saying you should, should yourself. I just think that that's such a huge trigger word. And I find it so fascinating as in like, there's such extremes of it. Yes. Yes. You can cut that out. Yes. No. <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> no, but it's so it's so true. I mean, it's it's almost that like 
It reminds me so, when you say that, it just reminds me so much of having done exactly what you're talking about, which is that feeling like I shouldn't, the antithesis of should, but like that I shouldn't say something because I've said something that's the polar opposite previously or that like the world has, Mm. it sort of just feels like we're living in a climate where everything is black and white rather than multi-layered and lots of different colors. And so therefore you either can say that or you cannot say that. Can and can't would be another version of the should. Uh, Would be another, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, to me, it's always like, okay, let's say someone misuses that word or that word does not serve them. That's something Mm. to be addressed. But, you know, if someone uses the word should, perhaps sitting there and trying to understand what they're trying to communicate is more important than trying to shame them for the way they communicated that. And I think this is also what you see in Instagram culture or online culture. Mm. There's just so much shaming of people for for the way they're articulating experiences um, without people realizing maybe the pain and the depth of that experience. That is perfectly well said. Absolutely, yes. Let's talk about another area where I feel like I want to get your take on this because I feel like this is one of those where we have the right, have like this beautiful phrase for it, but I have found this so elusive, both in research and then in in the reality of trying to use the, some of these concepts in practice, which is the idea of practicing gratitude. I feel like, listen, <laughs> I'm so grateful for so many things personally, but the action of gratitude, like what that looks like in my life, like what is that? How do we, mm. you know, like I feel like there's, it's almost like, wait, speaking of shoulds, I should have a gratitude practice. And then I'm like, yeah, wait, but isn't I that know. just my life? <laughs> like, you know, like what? Yeah. Help us. Tell us. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Gratitude is fantastic. And I'll talk about the way that I've kind of figured out to do it in a way that works for me. And, you know, some of my clients, I'm not saying it works for everybody, but I think what happened with the gratitude culture, it became forced positivity. Oh, it's like, you know, it's like, Oh, you're having a shitty day. Why don't you remember all the great things that happened? And yes, that may work for somebody, but it might not. And if anything, if the person is not ready to embrace gratitude, practice gratitude, whatever we want to call it, then it can induce a lot of shame and guilt. They can go, oh, well, I do have food to eat and I do have a loving family. So I really shouldn't be feeling. And then what actually happens is they suppress their emotions and they feel ashamed about their emotions and articulate their emotions. None of these things are great. (laughs) So for, you know, lack of a better word. And so I I think the issue with gratitude practice, it, it has to come because you genuinely feel gratitude. Yeah. You can ask yourself, hey, maybe observe and see the good things in your life. Because right now I feel like you're really focusing only on the negatives. Fine. But forcing yourself to feel gratitude, I think is different. And for me, there's a difference between, you know, you also see like, I'm thankful for the food. I'm thankful for the rain. I'm thankful. (laughs) And it's like, okay, what did that actually do for you? I don't know. Maybe for some, it really does. But I love doing gratitude, thanking yourself. So what do you want to thank yourself for? Um, And that kind of, you know, I I go, what do I want to thank whatever society for the people around me for God, for whoever the universe for or Clooney for whatever, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's like, what do I, depending on, you know, your structure, like who do I want to thank? And then going back to what do I want to thank myself for? And that's really the one I do. I don't really do the big gratitude yeah. things. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just personally don't practice it. I don't find it that helpful for me, but I go, how, uh, what do I want to thank myself for today? And that's great because that also helps you really connect with yourself, build self-trust and build that inner relationship. Oh my God. I love that so much. I'm definitely doing that today. I feel like that's the only, <laughs> I mean, because I think humanizing it even, or, or maybe just making it a being. So even if it's, I'm looking at my miniature dachshund who's sound asleep as I say this, and I'm like, what would I like to thank Francine for today? I know I will have for being extremely cute, number one, but also, but I mean, but I'm, I'm joking around, but to, to, to (laughs) for being, for being very low to the ground. I mean, that's, that's what the life of of a dachshund is like. Um, but for me, it's such a good point because I think bringing it to a person rather than I'm grateful for the stars. And like, then it has to become this like elusive. And you said this, and I don't know 
I don't know how you feel about this in other ways. I feel like this is everywhere on the internet right now is this like toxic positivity moment where I'm like, hello, things are hard. I mean, they're not, that doesn't make them bad, but like stuff can be really hard no. too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is why I talk about the power of and. Yes. I don't think it's great to just focus on the good, especially if, if you can't, you know, uh, genuinely experience it. I think it's great to identify the good things in your life. I think we need that balance, but it's also okay to go. I'm having a super hard day. It's a super shit day. Yeah, I'm having a hard time. I'm not feeling myself. I'm struggling with mental health, whatever it is. And mm. I'm grateful that I have a cute puppy. Yes. Great. They can coexist. Right. But I feel like the, the issue with uh, toxic positivity or forced positivity, uh, I like better yeah. is that it leaves no space for the complexity, which is all of us. And the reality that most of us, it's not like we live perfect lives and there's probably always something yeah. that is weighing on us and that's okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I just, I probably say thank you multiple times over the course of this, over the course of our time together, but I feel like I have to just say thank you for that. Yes. Okay. Sweet. We've got to get into the thing that I want to discuss with you so badly and that I have been really excited to get your take on and, and your thoughts on this because I feel like burnout is one of these currently pervasive and and in some ways Words. yes it's a word we're hearing we're hearing it everywhere and then in one regard we're hearing it everywhere in another we're also a lot of us are feeling it in different ways and maybe we're feeling it and not even knowing that we're feeling mm. it right so Tell us your thoughts on our current moment of burnout. What What is it? What does it look like? And are we experiencing it or what's happening? Yeah. Okay. So this is another word. And it was so interesting because I was just doing a bit of research on it. Actually, I wrote a USA Today article on it. Um, and burnout is also being somewhat misused as in burnout with the World Health Organization, diagnostically speaking, and all this other stuff. Uh, at least in Europe, I think it's the CDI, that's what it's called. It's only related to work. But people, when they talk about burnout, they talk about every area of their life. And I'm not saying, I, I totally get what they're saying. And sometimes, you know, people can say emotional burnout. And then I'm like, sweet, at least you clarified what you mean by that. But actually speaking, like the proper way to use the term is designated only for work. Um, and that was really fascinating. That only happened like two years ago, I think. So that's a fairly new development within the field of of kind of psychology as well. So yes, people are misusing it all the time. Uh, and I don't know what your question is. Yeah. I just really wanted to point that out, that when we talk about burnout, if yeah. we talk about it properly, it's only about work. I know. I mean, what's so interesting, to, it's so funny you say that because I literally, I forgot that that is so beyond scarily true, right? Like that it is, it's okay to be able to, say it if you feel that about, like you said, emotional burnout, but that diagnostically speaking, it's like, I think that World Health Organization edition was, it's just yep. about work. And it happened in yes. 2019, I think, or it might even yeah, be 2018, but it was 2019 that I first saw it for think, sure. Yeah. And they even highlight, they say specifically, but like they really want to drive that point home. <laughs> It's like, it is not meant to be used, you know, but it's kind of funny because yeah. I wonder if you like anxiety, you know, if we did that in the DSM with everything, it'd be pretty funny of like, this does not relate to Instagram interactions. Right. No. <laughs> it's like, just like clarifying every diagnosis. Um, but um, right. I want to be like, who at the World Health Organization copy edited this? Raise your hand. Yeah, who, yeah raise your hand. You did a great job. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So on that, for people like us of the millennial generation, as the millennial therapist, I mean, you know, I, I like that I'm like, I'm like, Sarah, speak on behalf of our entire generation. Oh, all the millennials. <laughs> Every <Yeah>. millennial <laughs> everywhere. No pressure. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, yeah. But what I, what I'm particularly curious about, and let's take World Health Organization just right there. Let's just take their definition of burnout speaking about work, our experience and relationship with work. Yeah. Do you feel like we, from a generational standpoint, do you think that there's this such a thing as millennial burnout? Do you think that that we struggle with that in a in a different way from from those of us who are, let's say, Gen Xers or Gen Zers, although I feel like they're inheriting some of 
our stuff a little bit. <laughs> Although I guess you could make that a little. Oh, just a little bit. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think millennials have a very unique position in society. I feel like we de- essentially develop the society we live in now. Yeah. And we have no blueprint of how to navigate it. Yes. Our parents didn't have half. I just got the, <laughs> the pressure you said that. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. our, our parents don't know what it's like to have to be on social media mm. for your work. They don't know what it's like to, you know, before it was, you have a home, you have a family, you have a car. Congratulations. Yes. You did it. Now it's like, oh, well, can you travel the world while you work minimal hours and make billions of dollars? Or are you saving the planet? Or are you, and it's like all these extremes right. of like, are you the best at this? <laughs> you know, and, yes. I, and I feel like there's so much more competition, uh, mostly because we are all connected. Yeah. And I think um, people are feeling a lot, a lot of pressure that way. So I, I think our lifestyles, like we have made endless opportunities for our generation, but I think freedom comes with a sense of anxiety. Mm. And I think that we're not really I anchored and yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're feeling a bit, anch- we're not really anchored. I think as a generation, I think we're experiencing a lot of identity crisis, which is my specialization. Yeah. So I guess that's a biased view, but I really, really, I really think that we're having a hard time. And so do I think that the burnout issues millennials are encountering are unique yeah i mean there's nothing new under yeah. the sun so to speak so i'm sure every generation has experienced their own version mm-hmm. of it um but i think this version is a is a jump and a leap and a skip from probably our parents completely i mean that so resonates with me of the freedom comes with a sense of anxiety and also this idea that we created this and yet we have no blueprint mm. for how to navigate it because there is no i was just i was just having this conversation with my husband this week about the idea of what it means to have a mentor right like that there used to be this mm. sort of perception of having a mentor is someone who works in your field or who um is simply older than you and has worked in a different field but has done lots of different things and is is just a generation in front of you or someone that you really admire. And I don't, none of those things really resonate with me or I I haven't found that to be true for myself. I feel like what I have struggled with is, and, and maybe this is an asset, it's just sort of getting different opinions of, of people I trust when I'm hoping to kind of information gather about anything. Yeah. But it's so true that like, yes, we created this, but who do we then ask about it, right? Like how do we- And each other. Yeah. That's the crazy thing, because I was also talking to a friend about this and and actually my sister, funny enough, yeah. this week and last week, where it's, it's just mentors don't mean the same thing. I now have to talk to a 20-year-old right. about TikTok. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or I have to talk about people going through the exact same thing my age because people older than I didn't actually experience it. So we're all experiencing it at the same time. And this can be a really beautiful bonding thing, or it can kind of be a bit of a shit show. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So when you hear someone say something like, how do we cure burnout or how do we fix this? My favorite thing. I'm sure you love that. Mm. Love it. Yeah. (laughs) Like Ikea furniture. Let's assemble it. Let's take it down. Let's fix it. Let's trade in parts. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll get a meatball (laughs) at the end. Then we'll just get a meatball. I mean, that's the best part. That's why we all go. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. How are we going to fix it? I mean, (laughs) given that we can't, given that we know we can't can't really fix it. Yeah. What what are we going to do? I mean, honestly, that when you said that, you know, I have a fear of Ikea furniture because I'm just so bad (laughs) at it, which is funny. So I really am there for the meatballs. Oh, I can't. Right? Like, why is it so hard? It seems. And my favorite thing is when you get something that's like, it like says somewhere on the the directions, simple. Or someone at the store is like, this is easy. This will take you no time. And I'm like, that's the tell for me that this will take me about 75 (laughs) hours. (laughs) Oh, yeah, like two to three weeks. (laughs) Like, it's just like, awesome. 
Oh, right. I'm the same way. I've kind of given up on IKEA furniture. Yep. Uh, I have friends that come over and do it. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I'm not an adult that way. I'm not. Same. Um, same and proud know, of it. There's no cure. Yeah. <laughs> there's no cure. I think prevention of burnout is a great way to think about it. I think when we think about burnout as persistent stress, as something that's mm. developed over time, that can also give us an indication that it'll take time to maybe heal mm. or to change the situation which has caused burnout in the first place. So it's not a quick fix. And I think it comes down to really basic things like take care of yourself. Rest, are you sleeping? Yeah. How much time are you scrolling and not sleeping? Yeah. <laughs> are you taking care of your physical health? I think people like to divide mental and physical and that you just can't do that. Right. And so, you know, uh, if you're not sleeping, if you're not eating properly, if you're not hydrating, if you're not moving your body, all these things can add to burnout. And I think that when you do have rest, that can really help. Exhaustion is mental and physical. Um, and so I think that's really important. I think reestablishing expectations so the shoulds yeah. of, you know, what am I, what should I be doing in the day? And I had to go through this not long ago, actually yeah. several times during the pandemic, I had to go, okay, well, let's fix my expectations because if I keep going at this rate and the speed and this direction, yeah. I am going to hit burnout. And so I think for me, it was really important to reset, set realistic expectations yeah which can be really hard for people, including myself. Same. And then adjust those boundaries mm. of like, no, I will close my laptop at this time or no, I will not check my email at this. And for me, and I, you know, it's just really, really difficult. So I, I have full empathy for anyone else who's struggling with it. But I think it's basic things of like, actually take care of yourself and celebrate the things that you do accomplish rather than, you know, the small things. Stop waiting for the big milestones to celebrate like once every year or five years and acknowledge, you know, the the things that you're doing. Um, and I'm going to rant, but the last thing is... No, please. Um, do things that actually bring you value. Oh, I think a huge thing with burnout is just finding no meaning and value in the work that you're doing. And that can happen because of the context of the work or whatever. But I just found that for me personally, was choosing to work on things that are really meaningful. And I'm lucky I'm a therapist. I love what right, I do. Right. But other projects outside of my clinic, it was being very, very selective because I want it to nurture me. Yeah. Even if I give into it, I want to get something back as in like it actually nurtures my creativity or I feel like I'm creating impact or whatever it yeah. is instead of it just draining me. Yes. Yes. But I, you know, I really, really relate to that so much because it's like, I feel like I chose, I'm talk about, talk about gratitude. It's like, I feel so grateful to be doing the work that I love. I mean, I know not everyone oh my can gosh, say that, yeah. right? But then there's that, there's exactly what you were talking about, which is the, okay, but then when I feel like I'm having an off day or I'm working on something that really drains me that I really just don't want to do, but like, that's true of any anyone's career is like, there's always going to be things you don't love as, mu as much as other things. And I'm like, oh, but that you need to right. do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Can we go into boundaries? Speaking of, you mentioned boundary setting, sure. but I feel like help. I, I, I have, uh -huh. I have written on this topic, by the way, I will just admit it here, Sarah, that I wrote this entire part of a chapter in, in dressing on the side, which is behind me right there. But I, but oh, I have written I part it. of a chapter that is literally about what I call boundary bullies. Like the thing, like the Ooh. things that kind of bully your, your own personal boundaries and get in the way of like you personally having clarity about things that you want or things that you need or what your life basically. Yeah. But that was really specific about about food and the sort of healthy habits around eating food. So like what we would, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even love that term healthy habits, but like the sort of habits that, that help you feel more like yourself is how I've found to kind of navigate that one. Yeah. But at the same time, I talk about another issue of my, I like that I'm using this as my own therapy session. Here we are. Here we are. I'm in a I therapy session with Sarah. <laughs> but like I found a way to write about it and feel really clear and confident about it with food as the quote unquote expert, I literally cannot actualize on this in any other area of my life. I have none. Where are my boundaries? They yeah. took a vacation. I don't know where they are. <laughs> I love this so much. That's so good. Yeah. 
help. Mm-hmm. How do we set those? How do we set more of them? We don't, I don't even have to set five. I'll just set one. I just want to know what is it going to be like? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, uh, it's such a complex topic. I think for so many, yeah. um, I think you hit on the point of, we need to know what our needs are. Right. Like, and if you don't know what your needs are, you're going to really struggle so, to set boundaries or at least helpful boundaries. Yes. But Imagine that you have a best friend and you're out having coffee and someone approaches and starts to swear at your friend and neither one of you knows this person or someone comes and steals your friend's purse or they get a mean text from their friend. What would your responses be? I just put my middle fingers up at the screen. I just was like, excuse I know I would I would clock somebody. Yeah, it's true. I would be like, excuse me. No. Like that's the first thing that came to my mind was that exact phrase. Excuse me, yeah. what are you doing? No. <laughs> no. Or like you can't behave this way, or this is the conduct that I expect, or you'd be really protective. Right. And the issue is that we're not protective of ourselves. Completely. There isn't often this automatic response of like, hey, you just invaded my space. My privacy took my money, mistreated me, called me so-and-so. So I'm automatically going to say no. Yes. I'm and I think it, I'm like, yes, you're like, yeah, no, just, Jackie, you don't yes. have it. If you're saying yes, you, you don't have it yet. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> but kidding. what I mean by that is boundaries have to come from a place of love because Boundaries are there to nurture the relationship you have with yourself and with others. And most of us feel like boundaries are walls and they're a form of isolation. But really, I find boundaries to be a love language. So it has to come from a place of love. So if we struggle to set boundaries, we're probably struggling a little bit in the self-love department. Completely. Oh my God. That's such, I literally, I'm just typing a note to myself (laughs) because I'm like, I have to, I literally have to, this is a new mantra. I have to sit around saying this. Boundaries are a love language. Yes, a self-love language. Whoa. Just that statement right there does already make it seem like a totally different. Totally different Exactly where we started, which is that sometimes it's, I have found this so much that like the language sometimes that's being used around a topic, to me, that's not how I would under, like it might not be the language that I would use. So I need to put it into my own terms in order to, or so often in, the world that we live in that, that we're looking at research and then trying to kind of use it for practice is that sometimes you'll hear people use research language in practice and that doesn't resonate. Or you'll hear someone like kind of go overboard with making it ultra simplified and that doesn't resonate. So it's like this balance of finding the right way to say things that actually resonates. And I feel like that's kind of game changing for me. Yeah. Good. Yay. <laughs> All on a Friday so morning. <laughs> All on a Friday morning. Friday's work. Great. <laughs> exactly. I mean, wow. Okay. All right. So we only have a few minutes left, but I really feel like I could talk to you for eight years. I really, I just, I, I'm like, can we just do this every like Friday? Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's make it a weekly thing. Exactly. Mornings with Sarah. Right. Sweet. Ooh, mornings with Sarah. Hello. Serious <laughs> nice right it. If hey? you're listening, serious, I feel like that's a good show. <laughs> um, I mean. Right? Exactly. What can't she do? She's dialing in from Serbia. Okay. That's it. I'm dialing in. I, I know. I like that. Really made me stop talk about Gen X. That really sounded like a boomer thing to say. That was like dial in. Let's <laughs> let's use the dial up internet dialing to dial in. in. Right. Yeah, I love it. Um, uh, so good. So what about what about our? This is another word that I feel like is a newer word or a newer phrase that people are using. And I saw something that you wrote. So so I um, this is kind of a leading question because I love I love what you wrote about this, which is. We're talking a lot about this phrase re-entry into into oh, the world, which yeah. kind of really bugs me on one hand. And then on the other hand, I think, oh, like, stop being like that, Jackie. Like, wait, so it's fine. It's what we, Let, it, <laughs> Let go. it go. Yeah. But this idea of going back to normal, can you talk to talk yeah. to us about that? Well, if you've seen me write about it, you know what I'm about to say, but there is no back to normal. I, I don't Thank think you. our our point in life should ever be to go back to something, Yeah, be it pre-pandemic, be it pre 
event, be it pre breakup, be it whatever, because I don't think that's honoring the experience we had. Yeah. And we're very different people now than before that experience. And we're a very different society and very different culture. And we need to understand that the point is to not go back mostly because I think there's a lot we, <laughs> we worked through yeah. or are currently working through, but also it's just not possible. Right. Um, and I think it's giving really unrealistic expectations I think it's also making people want to rush back before they're ready. Um, I think it's avoiding the fact that any change, even positive change comes with grief and anxiety and people are feeling anxious and they are mourning things that they're losing by the pandemic, you know, restrictions being different. Um, And so I just feel like there is so much pressure for people to be excited and to start flying and to be stoked to be going back to offices and, to resume a position in a role that they had. And it's just not allowing us to look at people and go, wow, we've all lived through something that was really traumatizing and really difficult. And so our normal, whatever that is, is going to look really different and let us all figure out what that is. Wow. But let me not get totally ahead of myself, but here's where I get scared, personally scared, is that Mm. when I hear, when I think about that, I think, like, yes, like resounding yes, because going back, like we don't, we've learned so much from this also, like there's so much value to even the horrendous experiences. And like you said, even, even things that are positive, like we still have to have some sort of acknowledgement over all of that. But where I start to get anxious is in the idea of, okay, so if it's new and now we've been forging our own path through, let's say, burnout or feeling like, you know, who is our good mentor right now, right? Like the, mm. then we're we're almost like, uh, that feels like free fall, right? Because we're all now, whoever is alive on planet earth is literally experiencing this moment. And so we have very few things, people, ideas, concepts to look to. And I feel like when I hear people say things about, about COVID, uh, like comparing the experience of COVID to the Spanish flu, I kind of want to pull my hair out. I'm like, mm. really? Because that's yeah. not 2021. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. that's like, I get it from a, from a pathology standpoint, but like, I'm not getting yeah. it from a human experience standpoint. I feel like it was a different time. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is scary. The The human mind is not like the unknown. And I think we have all lived in the unknown yeah. for so long and our coping mechanisms are coming to their wits end, so to speak. <laughs> and the fact that the future is very unknown for us still is really horrifying. And I think we're getting exhausted from being scared, but I like to always re- try to reframe it yeah. as in it's also empowering in a sense that we get to construct what it's going to be like. Ooh. As a whole, as a society, we get to now decide, are there things that we don't want to do that we used to do? Right. How can it look different in a way that can actually help us and help the people around us? And so, yes, it's absolutely scary, but I'm really, I guess I have maybe too much faith in humanity, but I'm really hoping that that it's something that we're in it together and that that gives us a sense of safety and that potentially we can actually create something that might work better for all of us. Yes. Yes. So where does connection play a role in that? How do we build connection during this current moment or or where do we start almost? Um, I think connection comes with vulnerability. Um, I mean, I, I don't think vulnerability should be forced. I don't think vulnerability should be demanded. Um, but I think that we need to be really open and authentic about who we are. Um, not in a cliche kind of way, but in a very genuine way. And I think that's going to make us very connected. I think we we think we're so much different than the people around us. But when we talk and we realize how many human experiences we share and how many emotions we share and how many struggles we share, that gap becomes smaller and smaller. And I think that, you know, just connecting is being vulnerable and showing up um, and allowing others to show up around you. Oh, Sarah, that's so good and so true. But one thing I want us to talk a couple minutes more about is that I'm almost wondering if we're approaching a new moment of like we hear about the forced positivity and that I'm wondering if you feel like we're also seeing that a little bit online with the forced vulnerability. Like, 
like, oh, right? Yeah. Like what's happening with oh, that? My gosh. And why? Why are we doing that? You don't have to do that if you don't want to, right? Like you don't, you oh, don't know it, me kind of thing. <laughs> like that sort of stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I literally wrote about it yesterday wow. um, where, you know, it, it can just be so traumatizing for people. If someone's not ready to hear your story, yeah, maybe, you know, it, I've heard about clients and, and friends being incredibly triggered or slash kind of traumatized watching people's stories on TikTok yes. um, or people forcing themselves to share a story story in a context that's not safe at all like imagine sharing a story around people that are don't want to support you and instead want to tear you down psychologically speaking that's really threatening that that can be really really damaging and I think we are on the spat of authenticity of like you need to show everyone everything and just be yourself fully all the time it's like yeah you should but it doesn't mean that others need access to that all the time yes you can be authentic and still not share absolutely everything with people that don't deserve that level of vulnerability or not safe enough. And so I think we're, we're just overcorrecting so much. We're overcorrecting with vulnerability and, and uh, a million other things, but th- those will be spirals and yeah. tangents. So I will not go into <laughs> it, but I, I do, I do think that people are like, Oh, does that mean just disclosing everything? And I think that's the issue. No one taught people like, you know, they're just like disclosure all the time. Let's do it. That's going to make us connect. And it's like, no, it's, you know, it builds intimacy. Vulnerability is a really serious thing. We need to take it really seriously and intimacy. You need to choose who you want to be intimate with. You can't be intimate with everybody. So it's just, you know, and you want reciprocal vulnerability and all this other stuff. And so it's just, again, psych words being Mm. taken out of context a little bit and then society just overcorrecting. But I do think it's beautiful that people are trying to be more open and vulnerable about their experiences that can maybe help other people. I just think we need to be, you know, a bit careful sometimes how we do that. Completely. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking as you're talking, I'm thinking about this one experience of it's almost like a vulnerability hangover. It's like you choose to be vulnerable without when you're told so often, be authentic, be yourself, be vulnerable, like disclose, Mm. like you said, and then you're not in a space that can handle it or among people with whom you're even remotely connected, right? Like that it's like free fall, feels like free fall. And then the question becomes, okay, so how do you figure out when? Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, Mm. like that's where I, land. It's like, okay, but then when, and how will I know, right? Like, unless it's someone that you're already close to, how do, how are we going to forge new connections if we don't know, like the when of, of when it's safe? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's such a good question. A vulnerability always entails risks yeah. or else it wouldn't be vulnerability. Truth. Yes. Um, I think evaluating safety is important. Um, I think sometimes we take risks. We evaluate safety the best to our ability. But I, I think vulnerability really comes down to can you handle if this goes wrong? Mm. Can you handle losing your money if you've invested money? Yes. Well, that's kind of how I see it. Like, can you handle if this person whatever happens. And if the answer is no, then I would be really cautious. I'm not saying, you you know, you can't do it, but it's like, do you have enough inner safety to be okay? If this person, you know, talks behind your back or uses that information, you know, in a way that's not productive for you yes. <laughs> or threatening for you. And so a little bit is also just evaluating of like, how will I handle if the risk goes wrong? And then my best, you know, guess with, with safety, how did I evaluate safety to the best of my abilities? I mean, I made that super not sexy, but you know what no, I mean? Like it really is. breaking yeah. it down. I, I think, it, I mean, I'm thinking it's exactly to something that you said before that I loved about the with great freedom comes great anxiety. It's also like, well, with yeah. great freedom comes great responsibility. So that's part of why yeah. there's some extent anxiety, but maybe we've we've gone too far on the anxiety front, but it's it's more of this idea of exactly what you said. Like we can't, there's no such thing as vulnerability if risk isn't somewhere involved, I guess. Part yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. The overcorrecting. I totally with you on that. I feel like we're doing so much much of that so much overcorrecting it's okay I feel like in history that always happens right but I just want people to stop policing one another and just trying to see one another for who they are and what they're trying to communicate and just 
just calm down. Yeah. That's how I feel sometimes. Let's just all calm down. Let's just all extend grace and patience yeah. and and not jump to conclusions and not jump to judgments. Like, let's all just do that. Wouldn't that be? <laughs> yes. Yes. Like, when Wouldn't did that we become be- so reductive? And then I think to myself, like, what if we've always been this reductive? I don't want to think that that's true. You know, like that. <laughs> it's like full spiral. No, but I mean, I think, uh, no, I love yeah. it though. I think our brain is reductive to some extent as, as, a, as a way to make sense of information and store information and I, I think it makes us feel safe that way. I think when you see a complexity of a full human mm. and you encounter all of it, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's why therapists yes. exist, I guess. I mean, you yeah. know, that's literally our job is to is to see someone for who they are. Um, and that's the most beautiful thing, I think, in the world is seeing someone for who they are. Yes. Um, but our brains are so keen to protect themselves. And usually that looks like, you know, reducing everyone and everything to something we already understand so we can store it away neatly in a box and not think about it. Totally. I mean, totally. I feel like that is sort of like where cancel culture's origins, like right there. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to keep ourselves safe, right? I think um, why we, why we have kind of schemas in our brain or why we have certain scripts or however you want to call it is because we want to do shortcuts. We go, oh, we see these, that's not safe. Yes. Um, and so it doesn't matter how much more the other person presents because we have this kind of cheat sheet of mm-hmm. like, I'm going to keep myself safe. I notice these, I'm out, which is not a bad thing. We need that. Yeah. But we, <laughs> I feel like that list has become so big right? Um, and we kind of shut people down so quickly without actually even looking at everything else. And now I've gone on to a different no, tangent. No, I the love point it. Is, yes. Just... You know, protecting ourselves is so, so important, but we should also not attack others in order to do that or reduce others in order to do that. It doesn't have to be us against them. It can just be, you know, I'm not going to spend time with that person. That's okay. Right. So I like to end these interviews with um, a dream list. Like it is, you have a little private jet airplane slash rocket ship and you can go anywhere in the world for a day to eat your favorite meals from your favorite places. Tell us what that looks like for you. Oh my God. I know it's a really hard question, right? I know. I know. Um, You can give me one. And by the way, this is the answer. I should make the caveat that the answer should be about um, today, October 1st, 2021. We keep it to the present moment. Like I'm loving X from X restaurant or whatever it is. Okay. Okay. Um, actually, yeah, it wasn't as hard as I yes. thought it would be. Um, <laughs> I know, it's really overwhelming at first. But then I was like, what is the one thing I'm always like, when I go back to home to Vancouver, yes. which, you know, has been home for so long, I'm going to eat this. Uh, Blue Water Restaurant in Yaletown, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. They have the best sushi. Um, and it's like this really? fusion Italian and Japanese food. So you have sushi and sake and all this stuff and then you have wine and steak and pasta and they have both and they're excellent and I think they're like you know I don't know one of the best restaurants voted over and over again but I think why it's so special to me is because I always go with family members I always go with close friends it's always a treat it's not something I eat like every Tuesday um and it's just my absolute favorite uh place to go because the food is so fresh the people are so lovely And I have the best memories with my family there. So I think that all plays a role. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. I cannot tell you how much I loved this conversation and how I would like for you to come and be here. And like, let's hang when you get to New York. I can't even wait for that. I wish I could come to you. But but given that you already (laughs) have a plan to come here, I feel like that works. Yeah. (laughs) New York is maybe Thanks. a little more fun anyways. Um, but thank you so much for having me. I I had oh, so much fun doing this, this podcast. So, so tell us, just tell us before I leave you, tell us where our listeners can, of course, find you. Where can we find you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram, millennial.therapist. That's probably the main place, but you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I don't use it as much, but I am there. And then my website, which is just my name, Sarah Kubrick. <sighs> Sarah, thank you. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jacqueline London RD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers.